Before we begin in Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 17 tonight, let us just remind ourselves that we are moving from the first day of Elul to the second day of Elul. The first day of Elul is called the beginning of the 40 days of Teshuva. Teshuva means repentance. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. Messiah was baptized on the first day of Elul, the first day of that 40-day period of Teshuva or repentance, even though he had nothing to repent of. He fasted for 40 days. He did that for us because of our sin. And it says in Matthew chapter 3, Verse 1, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What many people don't realize is that was the preaching every year during Teshuvah. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because they knew that the kingdom of God would come to this earth in the fall holy days. In the month of Tishri, they didn't know exactly what year. But every year at this time, the preaching is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is it this year? Is it next year? We'll find out soon. But like I said before we started the oneg, the word repent and either repent or repentance appears 57 times in the New Testament, but 80 times overall. From Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, we're going to see the same theme over and over and over again. It's, will you guys repent and come back to God? So I figured, well, might as well tell you guys. It's time to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The psalm that's read twice a day by custom, not by command of God, is Psalm 27. Have you ever read it? Psalm 27 is about the rapture and the resurrection and living eternally. The whole chapter. chapter. Living eternally with the Lord our God. Psalm 27 says, Psalm of David. Now let me just read it real quick. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. My Yeshua. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Meaning in this world and in the world to come. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble. Talking about the time of Jacob's trouble that's about to come upon us. He shall hide me in his pavilion. That's the rapture and resurrection. as Isaiah chapter 26. The secret place of his tabernacle. He shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. You know who that rock is? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Verse 6 says, And now my head shall be lifted above my enemies all around me. Therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Notice, there's a little note in your Bible that says, Joyous shouts. That's a teruah. 
Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries. False witnesses have risen against me, and such as bring out violence. I would have lost heart unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. What does that last verse mean? Maybe this is the year, maybe it isn't. But we will be steadfast. As the song said, we shall not be moved. For the Lord will come for us. Now let's begin our Bible study time. The book of Jeremiah, Yermiahu, which means the Lord exalts. Who does he exalt? The sinner or the repentant one? The repentant one, the saints. It breaks your heart, but the Lord has just said in verse 16, Do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. Because the people have made their choice. They have hardened their hearts. They are unrepentant. They've been called for generations to repent. They've hardened their hearts and said no. Essentially they have said, We will continue in our sin and God will have to take us anyway. Yeah, it doesn't work that way, does it? So verse 17, as we come into it tonight, says, Do you not see? This is God speaking to Jeremiah. After he tells him, don't pray for him, he says, Do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? We have to set the scene. The northern king of Israel has gone into the Assyrian captivity in 722 BCE. That's more than 100 years before this takes place. So they have physically seen God judge the northern kingdom and take them into captivity as Deuteronomy 28 said he would. Still they do not repent. God has allowed Assyria to come down and attack Judah. And Hezekiah repented and God destroyed the Assyrian army. Then the people turned back to sin. God has sent prophet after prophet and the people have put him to death one way or another. Isaiah, they put in a log and sawed the log in half. He's written about it in Hebrews chapter 11. So he said, do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? Verse 18. The children gather wood. Anything wrong with that? Well, got to keep reading. The fathers kindle the fire. As long as it's not Shabbat. Why is that a problem? And the women need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. There's a problem. The entire family, man, woman, and child, are all united in this pagan idolatry, the worship of the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. Did God tell us that would provoke him to anger? Amen. Let's turn back to Exodus chapter 20. It's not like God makes us guess what's going to anger him. He tells us in no uncertain terms. Yes? 
Did I start the recording? I did. That's okay. I appreciate your checking on me. Yeah. In Exodus 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Let's start in verse 3. You should have no other gods before me. It means literally in my face. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that's in heaven above us, in the earth beneath, or this in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity, the sin of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. He's what kind of a God does he say? A jealous God. And it provokes him to anger when we worship another God in his face. Now this queen of heaven, let me take a moment and talk about the queen of heaven. Because many of us have heard that term referred to Mary. But it's a term much older than that. It says the queen of heaven was a title given to a number of ancient sky goddesses worshipped through the ancient Mediterranean and the ancient Near East. Goddesses known to have been referred to by the title include Inanna, Anat, Isis, Newt, Astarte, which becomes Ishtar, which becomes Easter, and Asherah, in Greco-Roman times, Hera and Juno bore this title. Forms and content of worship varied. It says the Queen of Heaven, Latin Regina Caeli, is a title given to the Virgin Mary by Christians, mainly of the Catholic Church, and to a lesser extent by Anglicanism, Lutheranism, and Eastern Orthodoxy. The title has long been a tradition included in prayers and devotional literature and seen in Western art in the subject of the coronation of the Virgin from the High Middle Ages, long before it was given a formal definition status by the church. Ding, ding. Ding, ding. Okay. Let me read the theological basis. It says, The Queen of Heaven, Latin Regina Caeli, is one of many queen titles used of Mary, Mother of Jesus. The title derived in part from the ancient Catholic teaching that Mary, at the end of her earthly life, was bodily and spiritually assumed into heaven, and that she is there honored as queen. Pius XII explained on the theological reasons for her title of queen in a radio message to Fatima of May 13, 1946. Bendito Seha. Quote, He, the Son of God, reflects on his heavenly mother the glory, the majesty, and the dominion of his kingship. For having been associated to the king of martyrs in the work of human redemption as mother and cooperator, she remains forever associated to him with a practically unlimited power in the distribution of the graces which flow from the redemption. Jesus is king throughout all eternity by nature and by right of conquest. Through him, with him, and subordinate to him, Mary is queen by grace, by divine relationship, by right of conquest, and by singular choice of the Father. In his 1954 encyclical, Ad Ka'ali Reginum to the Queen of Heaven, Pius XII asserts that Mary deserves the title because she is the mother of God, because she is closely associated as the new Eve with Jesus' redemptive work. Because of her preeminent perfection and because of her intercessory power, Adka Ali Reginum states that the main principle on which the royal dignity of Mary rests is her divine motherhood. 
So with complete justice, St. John Damascene could write, quote, When she became mother of the Creator, she truly became queen of every creature, end quote. Is that true? What's that? It's just not true. It's just not true. Does it smack of pagan idolatry? And yet, it's believed by, what, 75% of the people in this world that call themselves Christians? Mm -hmm. How many of you here think you're going to call Mary the Queen of Heaven? No, no not a chance. For references also to the Queen of Heaven, see Jeremiah chapter 44. Jeremiah 44. Verses 17 to 25. Since it was pagan, that's probably the reason it was incorporated into the Catholic Church. Yeah, because it's pagan sun worship. It was because it was pagan. Yeah. Yeah, if you have not watched that video about was Constantine a Christian or a worshiper of the invincible sun, you ought to watch it. It's pretty good. But Jeremiah 44, you found it? Verse 17. Oh, we got to start in 16. As for the which you have spoken to us, the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. Who are they speaking to? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. We won't listen to you. But we will certainly do whatever has gone out of our own mouth to burn incense to the Queen of Heaven. Ever see any candles and incense stalks around the statues of the Virgin Mary in the Catholic Church? We'll burn incense to the Queen of Heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we have done. We and our fathers, our kings and our princes in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food, were well off and saw no trouble. But since we stopped burning incense to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. So to whom are they giving credit for the good times? To the Queen of Heaven. Who do they blame for the bad times? God. The women also said, and when we burned incense to the Queen of Heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, did we make cakes for her to worship her and pour out drink offerings to her without her husband's permission? They say, look, you're turning to us women. Was it not the whole family? Was it not what we read in Jeremiah 7? It was the whole family. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the people, the men, the women, and all the people who had given him that answer, saying, The incense that you burn in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings and your princes, and the people of the land, did not the Lord remember them, and did it not come into his mind? In other words, you want to know why judgment's fallen? That's why. So the Lord could no longer bear it because of the evil of your doings and because of the abominations which you committed. Therefore your land is a desolation and astonishment a curse and without an inhabitant as it is this day. Because you have burned incense and because you have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord or walked in his law, in his statutes or in his testimonies. Therefore this calamity has happened to you as at this day. Moreover, Jeremiah said to all the people and to all the women, Hear the word of the Lord, all Judah, who are in the land of Egypt. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, You and your wives have spoken with your mouths and fulfilled with your hands, saying, We will surely keep our vows that we have made to burn incense to the Queen of Heaven and pour out drink offerings to her. 
You shall surely keep your vows and perform your vows. Notice he's going to put them all to death. Why? They've seen the judgments of God poured out. And they say, see, if we had just kept worshiping the queen of heaven, everything would have been fine. They didn't. Yeah, that's his point exactly. They didn't ever repent and start worshiping God. Uh, they didn't think about it. And that was his whole life's ministry. Yeah. Preaching repentance. But they never even slowed down. Yeah. From Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, the reason we keep talking about repentance over and over and over is because God talks about it over and over and over. Because he calls the world to repentance. And what does the world say? No. No, nah, we'd rather walk in sin. Does it say in the New Testament that God has called all people to repentance? Yes. Where is that? 2 Peter 3, what? 2 Peter 3, 9. We can do better than that one, but let's look at it first. 2 Peter 3, 9. There are so many to pick from. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Who does he want to come to repentance? Everybody. Everybody. Let's see. Well, that one's good enough. Let's just go on. I don't want to get... Yeah, I do want to get... But let me not get on soapbox. <laughs> so we didn't finish verse 18. Let's go back to Jeremiah 7, 18. The children gather wood. The fathers kindle fire. And the women need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. What should the fathers be doing? They should be teaching the children the Torah. And instead, they're teaching them to be pagan idolaters. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. The word anger is such a visual word in Hebrew. It's the word for nose, the flaring nostrils. When you get so angry that the nose flares, God says, this is what it does to me. But people say, but Wayne, pagan idolatry, that's a thing of the past. There isn't any idolatry anymore. Oh, yes, there is. And if you look at Isaiah chapter 65, it continues right up until the time that Messiah returns. Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, verse 2. Isaiah 65, verse 2. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. What's rebellious mean? They won't listen. Who walk in a way that is not good. Are they walking in the way of the Lord? No. What way are they walking then? Each man did what was right in his own eyes. They did what they want to do. And they're saying to God, you just have to accept us anyway. Walking away is not good according to their own thoughts. The people provoke me to anger continually to my face. 
who sacrifice in gardens. That's idolatry. Burn incense on altars of brick. That's the pagan gods. Who sit among the graves. That's uncleanness. Spend the night in the tombs. Who eat swine's flesh. Can you believe it? They're eating pigs. And the broth of abominable vessels is in their... The broth of abominable things is in their vessels. Who say, keep to yourself. Do not come near me for I am holier than you. So they do these things and think they are holy. They think they are righteous in the sight of God. How could the world go so cattywampus that one is doing these sick pagan things and thinking they're walking in right stead with God? There has to be syncretism. Somehow the worship of the pagan gods has to get mixed in. And that's exactly what has happened it's kind of off point, but you may as well, since we're in Isaiah 65, look at verse 11. Sometimes I say, which is in the Bible, Christmas or? Christmas or what? Hanukkah. <laughs> Hanukkah. Which is in the Bible? Answers both are. But Christmas is here in chapter 65, it's verse 11. But you are those who forsake the Lord. Who forget my holy mountain. Who prepare a table for Gad. And who furnish a drink offering for Mani. That celebration of Gad and Mani on December 25th. Is what became the Christmas celebration. What does God say? It says you are those who forsake the Lord. I know you all knew that. Go on back to Jeremiah chapter 7. But there's somebody out there. And go to meeting land going. What? We're in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 19. <coughs> <coughs> Do they provoke me to anger? <coughs> says the Lord. Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? Come judgment day when they stand before the Lord our God in judgment. Are they still going to be proud of what they've done in worshiping the queen of heaven? No, they're not. Let's go back to Ezra chapter 9 verse 7. Ezra chapter 9 verse 7. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. There's that same concept, that same word, that's humiliation. The shame of faith, as is described here in Jeremiah, means utter humiliation. Now, humiliation... In mind, it says confusion. Is that confusion is not even close? Okay, so confusion should be humiliation. Humiliation. Humiliation is just described here in Jeremiah seven as shame of face. Okay. <clears throat> it's like 
How many of you had the dream where you walk into church and realize you're naked? And you're humiliated. That's the kind of humiliation and shame they're talking about. When the sins are laid bare for the whole world to see. Verse 20, therefore, what does therefore mean? Because they have worshipped the queen of heaven and spit in God's face. Therefore, thus says the Lord God. Does it really say the Lord God? It does not. It really says... My Lord, the Lord. My Lord, the Lord. Behold. What's behold mean? Is there a lecture coming? One that we need to take care to listen to? My anger and my fury. My anger and my fury will be poured out in this place. Not Zaam. Sa'am, the word indignation, meaning the wrath of God being poured out, is reserved for the day of the Lord. Here he simply describes it as my anger and my fury. But you get the idea that somebody's in trouble, don't you? It will be poured on this place on man and on beast, on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. Remember, this is explaining, verse 16, don't pray for these people. Who's going to survive this wrath being poured out? Not even Jeremiah if he had stayed in Jerusalem, but he will be in Egypt at the time it's poured out. There will not be a soul left in Jerusalem. God will tell Jeremiah to leave. Not a man, not a woman, not a child, not an animal, not a tree, not a fruit-bearing vine. God says what he means and means what he says. And even though the children of Israel are saying to Jeremiah, oh, it won't happen. Did God hesitate? Did he stutter? He was as clear as he can be. But please make a note, it is not Zaam. This wrath and anger that's poured out here is more than gets poured out in the day of the Lord. In the day of the Lord, there's a remnant that survives. Verse 21. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. We know the Lord of hosts is whom? Yeshua who returns in Revelation 19.11. But he's also called here the God of Israel. So many people have said, Wayne, the Bible never calls Yeshua God. It does in many places. This is just one. Lord says, add your burnt offering to your sacrifices and eat meat. Why would he say that? Because he doesn't care anymore. Hmm. Actually, if you go look at the Hebrew... It's stop your burnt offerings and eat meat. God says, I ain't listening. He says, I'm not taking it. You're not changing my mind. Is this setting forth a principle that we need to learn for the day of the Lord that's coming up? I hear people say, well, I'll just take the mark of the beast, but I won't mean it. <laughs> 
What's the scripture? So you take the mark of the beast and you're done. It's over. There is no change in your mind. God is setting a principle here when I say, you have gone too far. I will not accept your repentance anymore. He means exactly that. Mm-hmm. You're willing to take the mark of the beast, but still not worship the beast. Technically, you're still in a state of rebellion because God said, don't do it, and you're still doing it. And God said, if you take the mark of the beast, you cannot be saved, right? right. He told him ahead of time, just like he told him here ahead of time what would happen. So you're calling God a liar when you say that. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, didn't he basically say in Revelation, let him that's sinning continue to sin, let him that's righteous continue to be righteous? Didn't he just say... That's in Daniel 12. Daniel, when I call time, you just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. There comes a point in time where you can continue doing what you're doing. And you cannot change. And you cannot change. That's right. But today's not that day. Today's the day we can repent, we can change, we can come back to God. This is the time of Teshuva. It absolutely is. So verse 22, For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. What? When he brought them to Sinai, he was more worried about joining them in covenant. Yep. When he brought them out of Egypt, did he first say, build me an altar and sacrifice me a calf? No. He first called them to obedience. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Sacrifice is what you do after you've sinned, realized you've sinned and repented, then you bring the sacrifice. God said, when I brought you out of Egypt, it wasn't for you to bring me all these sacrifices. It was what? Verse 23. But this is what I commanded them saying. Obey my voice. Does God want a sacrifice or does God want obedience? Obedience. The children of Israel are sacrificing to the queen of heaven. And then bringing God a lamb and saying, hey, now we're even. We're square. God said, I didn't ask for the lambs. I ask for obedience. The lambs were when you wouldn't be obedient, but would occasionally repent. So verse 23, but this is what I commanded them saying. What's that word saying? It's a quote. Obey my voice. Shema b'kolo. B'koli. Obey my voice. And I will be your God and you shall be my people. That's the covenant. Obey me, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. That was the covenant. Where do we find that? That's in Exodus 19. Where do you find the commandments? They start in Exodus chapter 20. Wayne? Yes? He's talking about, he's talking to everybody. It's a commandment to the masses. Yes, Edmund. When in, in a debate with some people about um, uh, being gay, I found myself coming to the conclusion that we're very used to saying that love, uh, you know, is the top of the, the apex of things. But I came to the conclusion that you, you can actually say 
that obedience, uh, you can talk about obedience almost ahead of love, um, in that uh, in order to love you've got to be obeying. Therefore the, uh, the call for obedience is like the call to, to absolute authority of God. Uh, and so when, when gay people say to me, oh well God is a God of love and I love my partner, therefore that's acceptable, I say no obedience comes before um, love. Yeah. And if you uh, must be willing to give up parents, sons and daughters, wife and everything else in order to follow God to be a disciple, then obedience comes before love. Yep, they're looking at the word love as an English word. And it's far different than the biblical Hebrew. In biblical Hebrew, it's an action verb. It's how do you treat people. And Messiah himself said in John chapter 14, if you do not obey me, you do not love me. What Edmund is saying and you are saying, they're almost interchangeable. They're so breaded They're so interrelated, you cannot separate them. If you love God, you will keep his commandments. If you keep his commandments, it's because you love God. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? The chicken. The answer is the chicken. (laughs) God made the chicken. Okay. But I agree with you, Edmund, 100%. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 7 before I get too preachy. Verse 23, But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God. And Daniel points out that command obey is not to an individual, it's to everybody. Oh, but it was just to the Jewish people, not to the Gentiles. No, no, it was to everybody, including the mixed multitude that were grafted in. And I will be your God and you shall be my people. Walk in all the ways that I've commanded you that it may be well with you. Oh, we got to go back to the New Testament. I got to look up that verse. The one that's, and I'll tell you when I get there. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Verse 30. I knew it's on the left-hand page in the left-hand column. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Mm-hmm. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Can you think of words that are more broad than that? All men everywhere. They could have said all people everywhere, but that's the same thing, because in biblical Hebrew you refer to a mixed gender group in the masculine. So it's all people everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. What's the standard God uses? Righteousness. What's the opposite of righteousness? Lawlessness. If you stand before God in lawlessness, that's what Matthew 7.23 is about, where Messiah says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice what? Lawlessness. It's pretty um, spectacular that Paul would say these times, or I'm sorry, Luke would say, these times of ignorance God overlooked. For God to overlook sin is 
I mean, that's grace multiplied by grace. Yeah, God didn't overlook sin. That's not what that verse means. I, I think he does because there's a time of accountability. And before that time, God does overlook even behavior that they just haven't learned. You know, they're ignorant. Yeah, just ask Sodom and Gomorrah. What it means is that God didn't send the message, the Torah, out to the entire world at the beginning. It was given to those who came to God. But in Matthew chapter 28, it now went out to the whole world. Paul makes a pretty good case in Romans that the whole world knows there's a God and and knows what he expects of him. Yeah. So they may not have the Torah, but they obey the Torah. Yeah. So let's get back to Jeremiah chapter 7 because I haven't finished the verses 22 to 24 yet. I got to get down to the end of 24. I still haven't got all the way through 23. I digress. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you. In which of the ways? Doesn't it say pick and choose? Obey the ones you want? No, it says, and walk in all the ways that I've commanded you, that it may be well with you. Yet, they did not obey or incline their ear. Or incline their ear means they didn't obey because they didn't want to. They don't want to know what God's commandments are because they don't want to do them. Boy, if that doesn't sound like a whole lot of pastors I've talked to who say, don't tell me what God expects of me, then I'll have to do it. Well, the fact that... uh, Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and dictates of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. The Lord wants obedience... And yet they say, no, no, no. We will do what we want to do, and God will just have to accept us anyway. They've got him confused with the Queen of Heaven. <laughs> Maybe they do have him confused with the Queen of Heaven. But he's the king, so But so many people today are deceived and think that God's commandments were temporary. How many times does God say forever? Do we need to go through that lesson again? That was page after page after page of verses where God says these statutes, commandments, and judgments are forever, are perpetual. What's that? It's said in Google 497 times. Forever. 497 times. Maybe God was just choking. But if he said 498 times, then he'd have been serious, right? What does God mean when he says, My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my mouth. And when Messiah says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Messiah says in Matthew chapter 5, Verse 18, not a single mark or a single piece of a mark will pass from the law, the Torah, until heaven and earth pass away. How do you get from that that they were temporary? Where would you just add Matthew? Matthew 4.4 4 and in Matthew 5.18. You know, I like the way you say it, Nolan. If God is not dependable, 
in there, in the Old Testament, what's to keep him from saying only redheads can come in now? Exactly. It makes no sense. If you can't depend on him, it's just like... Yeah, if God's wishy-washy. If, if we have friends that we can't depend on their word, what's the point of having them as friends? Yeah, exactly. But you know, you just ask how many times does God say a word, and yet I know how many times I read this book from the beginning. From to cover to cover, yeah. Over and over and over. Yeah. But until the Spirit of God opened your eyes spiritually, you won't hear it. You That's won't true. see it. Yeah. And it has to take people like those of us that are here now not to be afraid to say, you know, have you looked at this? Yeah. And there is a difference between the way the Lord spoke at his first coming and the way he speaks now. In his first coming, he kept saying, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. In Revelation, he says, those who have an ear. Yeah, no longer is it an ear to hear. It's no longer, if you want to hear it, you better hear it now. You better hear it now. No alternative. So let's go to Exodus chapter 19. To answer the question, which came first, the covenant with God or the commandments at Mount Sinai? Exodus chapter 19. Verses 3 to 8. In Exodus 19, 3 to 8, this is where the people enter into a covenant with God. The word covenant simply means a contract, a set of mutually binding promises. One promise relying upon the promise of the other. I must do what I say because you do what you said. Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 3. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel. Why does he say the house of Jacob and the children of Israel? Jacob are the unrepentant, and Israel are those that will repent. Right. You see what I did to the Egyptians. That's the ten plagues and the old little thing at the Red Sea where he drowned them all. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice. There's those three words again. And keep my covenant. Then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine. What do you know about an if-then? It's conditional. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure. Verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's the first use of that word, kadosh. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's the acceptance. We will do it. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 15. You know, 
each and every one of us here, while we're turning to that, should feel very honored that God has allowed us to spiritually hear the truth and hold on to that treasure. Because, I mean, I feel guilty that I didn't have more years to know what I know now. But it's such a privilege to know it and have been called out to make a difference. A called out assembly. Yeah. So verse 22, you were there? 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For, because, rebellion is as like the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. So Saul says, yeah, okay, I didn't obey the Lord. I'll just bring him a lamb. And what does this prophet Samuel say? <laughs> Not going to happen. If Saul had been obedient to the Lord, Jonathan would have been a king after him. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 21, verse 3. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 3. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 3. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Is that not what Samuel told Saul? To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Oh man, does that sound like Romans 6.1? What then shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. What was Paul trying to say? Stop sinning. Repent. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Not Malachi, it's the other M one, Micah. Micah chapter 6. Verse 8. It's a little book. Comes right after Jonah. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly? to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Does that not remind you of Ecclesiastes 12, where Solomon said, Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is man's all. Boy, you'd almost think this is the time of Teshuva, wouldn't it? <laughs> Back to Jeremiah chapter 7. We're up to verse 25. 
since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day. I've even sent to you all my servants and prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. How many prophets did God send? Many, 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 right? Yet, they did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. What's it mean they stiffened their neck? Like a stubborn horse, they refused to repent. They refused to hear God. They refused to be obedient. Says they did worse than their fathers. Meaning the more God called them to repent, the more they stiffened their neck and refused and said, you can't make me. That's how God hardened Pharaoh's heart, if you remember back in the days of the Exodus. The word hardened means to give him courage, to strengthen his resolve. It means the more opportunities God gave him to let the children of Israel go, the more firmly he stood, no, I'm not going to. And that's what God says in Revelation, the more I give people opportunities to repent, those who are going to repent and those who weren't, they just get harder and harder and harder. The more opportunities they have. Yeah. Makes their judgment more sure. Yeah. And also the prophets were simply a challenge to them to harden their hearts. Yeah. So let's go to Matthew chapter 23. Does Messiah say, I sent him prophet after prophet? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Beat him up and him up. Matthew 23, 37 to 39. The words are read. Unless you're looking at your computer. <laughs> then they may not be. Matthew 23, verses 37 to 39. Mm -hmm. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, shall see me no more till you say, Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So that means from the time of Jeremiah, God did not cease to send the prophets. He continued to send him prophet after prophet, even till Messiah's day. And they still refused to hear. <clears throat> you and I have the word of the prophets here in the Bible. And yet how many people refuse to hear? Let's not be one of them. Let's not be one of them. Back to Jeremiah 7, verse 27. Therefore... Because I sent prophet after prophet and they refused to hear. They refused to repent. Therefore you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not obey you. How did God know they wouldn't obey? Because they refused to hear every other prophet. You shall also call to them, but they will not answer you. They didn't hear Isaiah. They didn't hear any of the other prophets. God says, so they won't hear you either. But does that keep God from sending them a prophet anyway? 
Answer is no. Every generation must hear. Every generation must hear. There's prophet after prophet after prophet. They're written down here for us to see. And the New Testament says we should learn from them. What should we learn? Should we walk away with the lesson here of today that we can continue in sin and God will love us anyway? When did that ever work out? When was that ever the teaching? That you can walk in sin as much as you want and God will love you and bring you to heaven and just welcome you into his presence. Where is that? answer is nowhere except in the words of the false prophets. Verse 28. So you shall say to them, this is a nation. See that word nation? Make a note of it. It's not ger, it's goy. Goy means a pagan nation. So God is referring to the remnant in Judah and Jerusalem as a pagan nation. She shall say to them, this is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God nor receive correction. If they refuse to hear, what does Deuteronomy chapter 8.11 say? Let's turn back and look. Deuteronomy 8.11 Deuteronomy 8 is the very same chapter Messiah quotes in Matthew 4, 4 when he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's in verse 3. But in verse 11 it says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, I command you today. If you will not keep the commandments in the Torah, God says, you have forgotten me. That's why he calls them, lo me, not my people. Remember the promise in Exodus 19 was conditional. If you will obey, then I'll be your God. You shall be my people. Where is the promise in here that I will be your God and you shall be my people whether you obey or not? Nowhere. Nowhere. Turn to Exodus 20. Lest we forget. Yeah. I mean, like, God, when you read through the prophets, I mean, it's, it's the same consistent message over and over and over that just spills over into the New Testament. Yeah. Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection is extremely important because we have all sin and come short of the glory of God. And when we repent and come to God by faith, Messiah's blood takes away that sin. We have a fresh slate to start over. Then you have two choices. 
Do you walk in righteousness or do you continue to walk in the sins of the world? If you turn and walk in the sins of the world, what does the Bible say? It's better that you not heard the words of righteousness in the first place. But you know, the death, burial, and resurrection of Messiah made it completely possible for Can us to do what God is expecting us to do. Because we, can, we have the Holy Spirit living with yeah. us to write his Torah on our hearts. Right. So I mean, it's, it's like people try to disjoint those two ideas. Oh, they were saved this way in the Old Testament. But then this nice new Jesus came along and gave us these brand new commandments. Yeah. So it's that disjointed. Yeah. Idea. When people say that they were saved a different way in the Old Testament, they simply do not understand. Mm -hmm. Salvation by faith is from the beginning. Yes. It precedes Mount Sinai by more than 400 years. Salvation was never by works. Salvation was always by faith. When you come to God and you're saved by faith, you have a blank slate. And then you have a choice. Do you walk in righteousness or lawlessness? First Corinthians chapter 3 says, No foundation can be laid other than that which was laid, which is our Messiah Yeshua. And then you build on it. Do you build with gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, or stubble. And then judgment day will decide what kind of house you built. Yep. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 6, we talk about God being a merciful God, and he is, but he does not promise his mercy to everyone. Verse 6, but showing mercy to thousands, that's thousands of generations, to those who what? who love me and keep my commandments. You will find that same phrase over and over and over again through the scripture. But showing mercy to those who love me and keep my commandments. It's a participle continuing action. If you turn away from God, let's go up to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. I will next. Mm -hmm. But first, I want to look at First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one, starting in verse thirteen. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind; be sober, which means right-minded. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah as obedient children. So who is that grace to be shown to? Obedient, obedient children. Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in what? In all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Be holy, for I am holy. Where does he quote that from? Leviticus chapter 11. That word, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Right. Stretch that out a little bit, help me to better understand what the word gird 
It means to prepare your mind, get it ready for travel, get it ready for serving the Lord. Do you do that by walking in the sins of the world or by studying the word of God? Yeah. Now go to 2 Peter chapter 2. So in chapter 1 he says, Be holy as I am holy. And then chapter 2, starting in verse 20. 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. For if they, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah, they are again entangled in them. In what? What do, what do we mean by the pollutions of the world? Sin of the, Sin of the world. And overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. That word holy is what? Hagios is the same word as saint. Ken, in reading this over and over again, I kind of see like there's a level, different levels in hell. Just as it's like God said. You know, it seems as if there's. There are uh, different levels of punishment, right, yes, but. Yes. None of them are anything you want. Right, I know, but I mean, it's just God's given us a free up. There is something where everybody's going to get there. Yeah. To give to them according to their what? Work. That's Revelation 22. That last verse when it says, the holy commandment. Yeah. The commandment is Deuteronomy. So people that just say the Old Testament doesn't apply, just can't read it. Right. I wouldn't say they can't really say they don't want to. Yeah. What's that old adage? No one is so blind as the one who refuses to see. I think what you said last week in one of the lessons where you said that people want to, but yet they can't understand. They can't see it clearly. It's like oil and water being mixed. The desire is there, but it's not a heartfelt desire. You said some people can read, and I had done that, just read the Bible, and got anything from it, nothing. Right. But then those who read it and study it, and there's the difference, because the Lord did say, study to show thyself approved. He didn't say glance at to show yourself approved? Uh, no. No, he said study. Okay. Jeremiah 7, verse 29. Oh, have we done 28? We didn't finish 28. So you shall say to them, verse 28, This is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God, nor receive correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. What is truth there? The Torah, Psalm 119, verse 142. They didn't want it. Verse 29, here's what God says to Jeremiah. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Why? It's a sign of captivity. Yeah, it's a demonstration of what's going to happen. When they took people captive in those days, they shaved off every hair from the body and chained them together and walked them naked from the place they were taken to the place they were going to shame and humiliate them. So when God says, cut off your hair and cast it away, it's a visual picture that captivity is coming. Yeah, ugly march. 
and to take up a lamentation on the desolate heights. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. Oh, you don't want to be included in that generation, do you? It means God has judged it. It's over. Verse 34, because. It's because God's a mean God, right? No. For the, for the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. What is the house which is called by my name? That's the temple. They put their idols in the temple of God. Why would they do that? Except to spit in God's eye. To displace God. Is to displace God and be right in God's face. Okay, the every Catholic church. Instead of that, let's go look here at the abominations like what we're talking about. Go to Second Kings and let's see what King Manasseh did. Yeah, even when I mention Manasseh, you know bad things are coming. Second Kings chapter twenty one. Second Kings, Kings chapter 21 verses 1 through 9. Manasseh became king when he was how old? 12 years old. So verse 1, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. That is the Amorites that God had driven out because their sins were too much for God to tolerate in his chosen land. They did worse. Verse 3, For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. This is Hezekiah's son. Hezekiah destroyed all the high places and restored the worship of God. And as soon as Hezekiah is gone, his son takes away the worship of God and restores the idols. He raised up altars for Baal, Baal, husband, and made a wooden image as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven. What's the host of heaven? The sun, moon, and stars. And served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord. Are they altars to the Lord? No, they're altars to the pagan gods. Of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Where did he build these pagan altars? In the courts of the temple. Also made his son pass through the fire that is sacrificed to the pagan gods. Practiced soothsaying, that's witchcraft, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. 
He was set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house to which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. You realize he literally did that? The seven mountains of Jerusalem with seven interconnecting valleys make the letter Sheen, which is the short form of El Shaddai, Almighty God. Literally in the topography of Jerusalem. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers, only if they're careful to do according to all that I've commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them, but they paid no attention. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. They weren't as bad as the Amorites. They were worse than the Amorites. But what about Josiah? Go to 2 Kings chapter 23. Starting in verse 4. Second Kings chapter 23, starting in verse 4. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priests, the priests of the second order and the doorkeepers, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. So here comes Josiah. And he tears all the idols and altars out of the Lord's house and goes and burns them. Verse 5, then he removed the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense on the high places. In the cities of Judah and all the places are all around Jerusalem. And those who burn incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations, to all the host of heaven. And he brought out the wooden image from the house of the Lord to the brook Kidron outside Jerusalem, burned it at the brook Kidron and ground it to ashes, and threw its ashes on the graves of the common people. Then he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons. These are homosexual prostitutes in the house of God, set up there by Manasseh. I can't read any more of that. But now let's go to 2 Kings 23, verses 26 and 27. You know, when, as you were reading that, it made me think of today's churches that are turning so many homosexuals to teach and to minister and to do all this blatantly before the world and God. Yeah. Whereas Hezekiah took all that out of the temple of God. 2 Kings 23, verses 26 to 27. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger was aroused against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. The Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight as I have removed Israel. I will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house of which I have said, <clears throat> my name shall be there. So what Manasseh did caused the Lord our God to seal the judgment of Judah and Jerusalem. Even yet, God is calling Jeremiah to preach repentance. 
and see if that judgment can be deferred. Back to Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 31. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom. In Hebrew, that's Gehinnom. Or in Greek, that translates to Gehenna. Or into English, that's where we get our word hell. It's where they would burn the children to the god Molech. And God says, when you think of the lake of fire, just picture what you did to those children in the valley of the sons of Hinnom. It says, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. Hard to distinguish between that and abortion, huh? But Judah can't claim that serving the Lord our God is too hard because pagan worship required much more than what the Lord our God ever required. God never required. What's that? I said, it itself does not require anything. It's what man makes up for it to be required because there is no God there to make a requirement. Yeah. Yep. Verse 32. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. We will no more be called Tophet, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. <coughs> For they will bury in Tophet until there is no room. Mm. The corpses of this people will be food for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. That happened in the days of the Babylonian captivity, but is that the only time this happens? No, it happens twice more. Go to Ezekiel chapter 39. Ezekiel chapter 39 takes place about three years into the tribulation period. And we're going to read Ezekiel 39, verses 1 through 4. Let me give you a chance to find it. Ezekiel 39, verses 1 through 4. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog, and say, Thus says the Lord God. Again, it should be, My Lord, the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north, that's from Russia, and bring you against the mountains of Israel, that's the Golan. Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand, which means the great military might of the battle of Gog and Magog is going to be destroyed in a moment. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey and of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. Which means there will be so much dead, they can't bury the dead fast enough. The dead will lay in the open and be eaten by the birds and the animals. If the Lord tarries when we go to Israel in October, we're going to go to the Golan. You're going to see where this is going to happen. 
Happens again in Revelation chapter 19 at the end of the seven year tribulation period. Revelation 19. When the Lord returns on the white horse as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It says in verses 17 to 21. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So three times that was prophesied to happen. At the Babylonian invasion, at the Battle of Gog and Magog, and at the Battle of Armageddon. Back to Jeremiah chapter 7, we're up to verse 34. Then it will cause decease from the cities of Judah. And from the streets of Jerusalem, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. It means a disappearance of joy and hope for the future, as there will not be a single soul left in Judah or Jerusalem. And it literally was fulfilled that way. The last remnants of Jerusalem fled to Egypt and were murdered, or I should say, killed in Egypt. Not murdered, but killed. Still dead. No, not the same thing. Murdered is killing without reason. An unjustified killing. For these were quite justified, for they fell under God's judgment. So let's pick up with Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 1. At that time. Hmm. When you see in that day, you say what day? The Lord. At that time is often a reference to the tribulation period. So this is at least going to be like the tribulation period to give us a glimpse forward to see what it's going to be like. At that time, says the Lord, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah and the bones of its princes and the bones of the priests and the bones of the prophets and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem out of their graves. Who's the they? That's the invading armies. Why would they do this? Why would they bring out the bones out of the graves? To desecrate them. Go to Amos chapter 2, verse 1. To humiliate, to desecrate the graves, the bones. Amos 
Amos chapter 2, verse 1. I'll give you a chance to find it. Amos comes right after Joel. Amos chapter 2, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away his punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. So for desecrating the bones of the king of Edom, God would not forgive the transgressions of Moab. It was such an offense that God would not overlook it. So let's go back to Jeremiah 8 and see what's happened here. Why are they doing such things? Verse 2. They shall spread them before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven which they have loved and which they have served and after which they have walked, which they have sought and which they have worshipped. They shall not be gathered nor buried they should be like refuse on the face of the earth. So here, this time, this is God's judgment. That they will bring out these bones to desecrate them by lying them in the sun. They worship the sun all their lives. So let the bones lay out in the sun and be exposed. And be desecrated. Perhaps in addition, because Babylonians were sun worshippers. Yeah. So let's look at two verses in the Bible. Then I want to read from a handout. Second Kings twenty-one. Yep, exactly. Okay, 2 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 to 5. Put them in your notes and say, we already read that. And we did. But who was Manasseh building altars for? All the hosts of heaven. The sun, moon, and the stars. And in 2 Kings chapter 23... Just write down verses 1 to 14. Where it again mentions the worship of all the hosts of heaven. Now I want to read you from a handout. The names of some of the sun deities of the past. I had to print it with the paper going this way because there's so many. I knew about Baal and Ishtar and a bunch of those. But there's more here than I ever heard of. Everybody know Amaterasu? That's the sun goddess of Japan, which is the major deity of the Shinto religion. Shinto religion has a lot of worship of ancestors, but they also worship the sun goddess. And then you have Arena, A-R-I-N-N-A, which is the Hittite sun goddess. The Syrians called her Habat, H-E-B-A-T. 
She was the most important of the three Hittite major solar deities. In Greece and Rome, you have Apollo. Everybody knows Apollo, right? The sun god, Apollo, rides the chariot through the sun, through the heavens. In the Norse religion, they worship Freyr, F-R-E-Y-R, as the sun god. Not only a sun god, but one associated with fertility, just like Ishtar. The Hindus called their sun god Garuda, G-A-R-U-D-A. The Greeks had a sun god that they called Helios, H-E-L-I-O-S. He was deposed by Apollo and replaced as the sun god. The Hittites had a goddess called Hepa, H-E-P-A, the sun goddess, the consort of a weather god. She got assimilated with the sun goddess Arena because, well, why have two? The Aztecs called their sun god, <laughs> you try and spell it, <laughs> who's the blah, 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 yeah, it's about that long. Let me just spell it for you, H-U-I-Z-I-L, H-U-I-T-Z-I-L, Hootsil, O-P-O-C-O-H-T-L-I, Hootsil Apochitli. That's the sun god for the Aztecs. The Iranians and Persians called the sun god Havar, H-V-A-R, Kashaita, K-H-S-H-A-I-T-A. The ink is called the sun god Inti, I-N-T-I. The West Africans call the sun god Liza, L-I-Z-A, like Liza Minnelli. The Celtics call the sun god Luge, L-U-G-H. The Iranians and Persians had Mithra, and that was the religion of Constantine. It wasn't Christian was the worship of the sun god Mithra. In Egypt, they called him Ra. Do you remember in the movie The Ten Commandments, they created the golden calf? But during the, in the middle of the horns of the golden calf was the round disc of the sun god Ra. Yeah, the sun god needed somebody to carry him around, so he had this little bull to carry him around. Yep. In Ugarit, the sun goddess was called Shemesh, which is the Hebrew word for the sun. In the Norse, the sun goddess was called Sol, S-O-L. The Romans called the sun god Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun, also a title for Mithras. The Hindus had a sun god Surya, S-U-R-Y-A. The Aztecs have a sun god, Tony T-O-N-A-T-I-U-H. And the Mesopotamians had one called Utu. So sun god worship was all over the world. Has been from the time of the Tower of Babel, whose purpose was to build a tower up to the sun, moon, and the stars so they could worship them better. Anybody still awake? 
Okay. <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 3. Whoops. Verse 3. Then death shall be chosen. It doesn't mean chosen. That word's not translated correctly. It's preferable. Then death shall be preferable rather than life by all the residue of those who remain of this evil family. Who remain in all the places where I have driven them, says the Lord of hosts. So when God has said, that's it. Judgment is coming. You're going to die one and all. They're going to prefer to be dead than to see the wrath of God that's going to be poured out. So why don't they just repent? No, nah, that's verses 4 through 6. It's the false prophets. Verse 4 says, Moreover you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Will they fall and not rise? Meaning, would you rather die than repent? Will one turn away and not return? Why has this people slidden back? Jerusalem in a perpetual backsliding. They hold fast to deceit. What is deceit? The lies of the false prophets. They refuse to return. I listened and heard, but they do not speak aright. That's the false prophets. They're teaching them wrong. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? Everyone turned to his own course as the horse rushes into battle. So why didn't they repent? Because of the false prophets. Let me once more go down the list. You may have it already. Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 31 says this. You don't have to turn there. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. And my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? So why do the prophets prophesy falsely? That's what the people want to hear. Jeremiah 14, 14. Just write down the reference. You don't have to turn there. And the Lord said to me, the prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, and the deceit of their heart. After the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. Lamentations 2.14. Again, Lamentations 2.14. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity. Meaning what? They haven't told you to stop sinning. To bring cap your, your captives, which if they had repented, the captives would have returned. But have envisioned for you false prophecies and delusions. Ezekiel 22 verse 28. Again, just write down the reference. Her prophets plastered them with untempered mortar, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God, when the Lord had not spoken. Ezekiel, Ezekiel 22, 
verse 28. And the rest of them are from the New Testament. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, which says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Remember, that was Messiah's reason for so many people on the broad road to the lake of fire thinking they're saved because they're listening to false prophets. Matthew 24, verse 11. Again, Matthew 24, verse 11. says that many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. During the tribulation, what keeps people from repenting and turning to God? False prophets. Matthew 24, verse 24. Again, Matthew 24, verse 24. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Three more. Mark 13. What's that? Those that are saved. Yep. Mark 13, verse 22. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. <laughs> two more. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. But let me ask this, were those who were taught wrong by the false teachers on the road to heaven anyway? No, they were not. The last one, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Did the Lord tell us how to tell the true teacher from the false teacher? And what's that? Look at their actions. If they're keeping the commandments of God, they're going to teach you right. If they're not keeping the commandments of God, what are they going to teach you? If they're walking in open and outright unconfessed sin, what are they going to teach you? To sin. And that brings us to the end of our time. It's 8 o'clock on the button. So we'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 6. Verse 6.